0: hello everyone and welcome back to the afrobeat woman podcast today i want to share with you part of my quote creatives dilemma that i've been trying to navigate and trying to produce edutainment podcasts so to speak however this podcast is going to be hard to listen to but it's very necessary the conversations and the clips that i'm sharing with you and just where you can't listen anymore fast forward up until the end. Last but not least, I really want you to hear that message. Do your best to get to that one at least. And you know why when you hear it. So I'm recording this on December the 10th. However, when I put this out, it's going to be a few days after that. And today being Human Rights Day that has been observed by the United Nations General Assembly, which was adopted in 1948, And this document being translated in over 500 languages proclaims the inalienable rights that everyone is entitled to as a human being, regardless of race, color, religion, sex, language, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth, or other status. As usual, all the sources I use for this research will be linked to the description of this podcast. Today I'm going to do my best to highlight five human rights activists. These people are bringing change to communities in ways only they know how because they're from there. Welcome back to the Afro Beat Woman podcast. My name is Shiva Commissary. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: My name is Boniface Mwangi. I'm a photographer and an activist from Kenya. The point why I was here today is talking about how do you discover yourself and how do you get your voice. If you discover your voice and discover yourself, then you, you give value to the world.
2: Anybody have any concrete thoughts on what, if anything, they might do?
3: I would work in advocating for women throughout the world. I would go to places like India and Africa and the Middle East where it's like
1: it has the most issues. Can I ask a follow-up question? Yeah, so as a, as a woman of color, why travel all the way to talk about women in India when you have race issues in your country and actually they affect your people, people who look like you and young black men. And if you speak about it here, they'll hear you more because you're local.
0: Um, I don't know, I guess people in India
3: and the Middle East and Africa suffer more than women here do.
1: You don't know them, they don't know you, and they won't listen to you. Uh, we have people working in India every single day to deal with those issues. Why don't you start local before you go international? No, I'm not putting you on the spot. Sorry, I'm not putting you on the spot. I, I do apologize.
3: It's OK. I guess it is important to start local, I guess.
1: As in, there there's so many things in your backyard that you can actually address without traveling all the way to India. So there's the idea that you need to be helped. I don't think you need to be helped. But I know as human beings, our challenges, our struggles are connected. So I come here to share with them what we guys are doing back home and what they can learn from them.
3: I went to Guatemala. It was a great experience. It was a great eight weeks. Um, But in what world does it make sense for you to go and fly out um, to do a community service project?
0: In terms of someone coming from a different country and going and making impact or doing work, it just seems like it's less helpful than it would be if these people were being helped by people within their community so they could have a continuing relationship.
4: Why do you think we are not having that conversation? I can completely say from personal experience, there's, there's a clear sense of glorification. Um, and there's also this, there's a sense of um, this uh, faux like, heroism. And then when I'm here like locally in Durham doing like, very similar work, um, people aren't as excited
1: by it. Uh, there's a quote. Uh, it's a Nigerian quote. Until the lion has its own storytellers, the hunter will always be glorified. And that's what you need in Africa. You need actually, you need the people who live in Africa to tell their own stories. Why do you get white people to talk about Africa and they have no context? Why don't you ask Africans about Africa? Why do you have to get someone from here who is an expert because they went to Africa for two weeks. The whole the problem is how we frame the issue. You're not going there to save anybody. You're going there to save yourself. Because at the end of the day, this money you're spending booking tickets and doing all these things, if it was just sent there, actually it could do a lot more. The guys who go there, people who, who travel to Africa, to those countries, they're the ones who benefit more. This experience, played a part in them getting a job. So they are the people who benefit, it's not Africa. So. There's nothing wrong with service and serving other people and uh, going abroad. I think it's a very noble idea. Uh, the question is, the why are you doing it? And that's what you brought up. And why go abroad if you can serve at the local shelter or the homeless place locally? And my concern is that you guys, as you try and to save the world, you're neglecting the issues at home. race issues what's happening in missouri right now
0: when i heard this clip it resonated with me for many reasons the point about being aware of the issues that are local to us rather than trying to advocate for issues foreign to us this clip from the new york times op-ed by boniface mwangi titled an african's message to america help yourself boniface Mwangi is a photojournalist activist, a two-time recipient of the CNN Photojournalist of the Year Award. He's the founder of Power 254 in Nairobi, Kenya, which is an art collective where visual art is used to power social justice through workshops, forums, and events. Power 254 empowers the young professionals and disadvantaged youths for the advancement and safeguarding of human rights in Kenya. While doing research for this episode, I quickly realized the aspects of the creative's dilemma, quote-unquote, for me has always been trying to attach meaning beyond edutainment for my audience. 70% of the audience being based in the U.S. Quite honestly, that was surprising to me. However, as we all know with the internet, as long as you have something that's of quality somebody somewhere will listen and you'll be surprised where they're actually at through a really insightful story of warira injuru founder of food for education that's when i found out about her story and why it is she started food for education this organization started only six years ago and has garnered so much international backing and support
3: so the cisco youth leadership award is an uh, award that was set up uh, by Global Citizen in partnership with Cisco to award a young person in Africa for last year, um, age 18 to 30, who's doing good work on the continent. And um, you, the prize was obviously getting to go on the Mandela 100 stage, $250,000 for your organization, and the ability to network as well. So it was really. An incredible honor to win it, especially because so many young people are doing such good work across the continent.
0: Yeah, and and you won because of your organization, which is called Food for Education. You are the founder and executive director. Can you tell us more about Food for
3: Education? Food for Education uh, provides low-cost, nutritious, high-quality school meals to public primary school children in Kenya, and we're doing this through a model that we've developed that centralizes production and distribution of meals. We source food from local smallholder farmers and use the food, cook the food and then take it to 10,000 kids every day. We started off really small with just 25 kids and now work with 10,000 every single day. When I went to university in Australia and I was doing my degree, I was learning about nutrition, the impact of nutrition, which i mean i had an idea but didn't really know the nitty-gritties of how like you know if you don't get enough nutrition before you're five it affects you for the rest of your life brain development physical development so I connected the dots between that, and I'd grown up in the area we work in, one of the areas we work in now, right now, rural. I'd seen a lot of kids who are not getting what they should have out of school. You know, for me, I went to school and my parents would push me, they'd be like, what do you need? You need a textbook, we'll buy it. You need, bo- you need food, you will get it. You know, you need this. All the things you're given, you're basically given the tools to succeed. And I'd seen a lot of children who hadn't succeeded in school, they'd spent eight years in. School school. And I think a friend of mine um, described it recently, like schools sometimes for a lot of children is just a daycare. You know, they're there, but they're not learning. They're not getting what they should be from the experience of being in school. And one of the things that with combined with the education I was getting was that nutrition was a big thing that was now making school not as beneficial for children as it should be. And so that's why I started that, because it was just a mixture of my background having grown up in Ruru and seeing that around me and also um having the now the knowledge the back knowledge of what the impact of nutrition is so where did you get started Um, i started when i was um, in australia still doing my degree i was in my second year of uni and um i'd just been there for a little next close to two years and i You know, I'd volunteered for different organizations, but none of them were working in Riru where I wanted to start and where I felt the most connection to. And so I decided to call a few friends, do a small fundraiser. Uh, I made Kenyan food for them. We raised $1,680, Australian dollars, which was around uh, 125,000 shillings, and then we started a school feeding program for 25 children. We built a small kitchen, bought a Jiko, and started a, a school feeding program for just the 25 kids to come and eat. How did you select the school? What criteria did you use? So we selected the school based on um, the proximity to the church. So this was the closest um, school where the children could walk, have lunch, and then go back before lunch break was over. The teachers helped us select the children, the 25, because it was a school of around 700 students then. So um, it really helped, they helped in terms of identifying the children who really needed help. Moving from 25 to 1,600, how many years has it been? It's been, so from 2012, so it's been around six. To seven years. Part of that, I did my degree. I finished it. I moved back home. I started a masters. I stopped the masters, and then I decided to now work on this full time. So since now I was working on it full time is from 2016, and then we started really like growing in terms of building our our facility, building a new kitchen, and being able to expand to reach more children.
0: Being an activist is a thankless job. A lot of the times, people get hurt people lose their lives or their livelihood that isn't always the case of course and that's why Wawira's we a story really resonates and i had to share it today can you imagine a world where we're all working on our interesting work as seth Godin calls it where we're not even able to describe it in a job description because it only resonates with us and it only makes sense to us and that's what i feel like what we were jiru's story is like like Only she had to go through what she went through to be able to give back to a community that she grew up in, where she saw problems in. And even if she worked with different NGOs, she knew she had to start something on her own. And with as little as about $1,200, she started just that. And international communities, the international world is recognizing her on global stages and where she's recently won over $250,000 for that interesting work that she does that couldn't be explained in a job description that she had already had work experience in. (laughs) I wish that on everyone and I hope this story resonates and has inspired you to do the same. In 2018, the Nobel Peace Prize for Campaigners Against Rape in Warfare was awarded to Nadia Murad and Dennis Mukwege. Together, they founded the Global Fund of Survivors of Conflict-Related Sexual Violence. In 2014, Ms. Murad experienced violence for simply being an Iraqi Yazidi, and in the midst of that ordeal, her family members lost their lives at the hands of extremists. Just two years later, Nadia would become the first United Nations Goodwill Ambassador for the Dignity of Survivors of Human Trafficking, as well as winning the Sakharov Prize for Freedom of Thought and the Vaslav Havel Award for Human Rights. And in 2019, she was appointed as a UN Sustainable Development Goals Advocate. As if the previous clips that I just shared with you haven't been hard to listen to, I do have to warn about the next clip I'm going to share with you which are comments made by the 2018 Nobel Peace Prize co-winner of Campaigners Against Rape in Warfare, Dr. Dennis Mukwege.
2: We know that in 2012, uh, your two daughters uh, were held hostage. Uh, Your good friend and security guard was killed for the work that you're doing, helping these women in their journey as well as to pursuing justice. Yet you continue to speak out and not only speak out, but speak out in a big way. Why do you think it's so important to do that?
4: Yeah, you know, <clears throat> uh, when I started to this job, as I said, I was not thinking that uh, I will be doing it for the, the, the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking that it, uh, it was just uh, um, someone who lost his mind, who was doing these kind of things. Yeah. But after years, I treat the second generation. And there really, I start to ask myself if I will stay in the operating room, waiting victim of sexual violence to treat them. This was really a big question for me. And then I I just say, this can't be my work for all my life. I would like to take care of women, to give them an obstetrical care of the quality, not treating as an um, atrocity on women and atrocity led by men, this could be stopped in another way. But when I treat for the first time a baby of 18 months, completely destroyed, there really I realize that the operating room is not at all the place where I should stay. So at this moment, I took 75% of my time working in the operating room. But the 25% of my time, I decide to try just to make awareness on the question because it's understandable that even babies, to rape a baby of 12, 18 months what is the goal then I start really to advocate not only in my country but out of the out of uh, the country and uh, in 2012 I came in 2011 I came here to talk about this question but uh, my minister of health he called me the evening and he said if you did your your if you are, you are going to do your speech, be sure that you are not going back in Congo. And if you decide to go back in Congo, so you have to be prepared for anything can happen to you. And then my family, my wife was there. I just thought that I can do this because it will be to take a big risk for my family. And I, I don't have a right to decide for them. So I canceled my my speech 12 hours before and this was really something so touching for me but I did it. But the next year, in 2012, there I decided to do my speech. And just after my speech, uh, one or two, two weeks uh, after I returned back in, in Congo and there at my door five, People with guns were waiting for me. And um, my two daughters were taken in hostage in the house. And this really was a terrible thing because uh, one of my friend and guard tried to protect me. When the men start to shoot on me, he just go to try to, to take his, his, his guns, but he's the one who, got the bullet, and me and him, we just fall down in the blood, and it was terrible, terrible things. But at this moment, I feel just, it was enough to stay in Congo. I I took a decision to leave the country.
2: Mm. Tell us about you coming back to the Congo after that.
4: Yeah, uh, I have friends here in the state. Um, I'm working with Physician for Human Rights, so um, we discuss about the situation and everyone finds that it was not at all acceptable and uh, I'm not protected by, by my state, I'm not protected by anyone. And in this condition, maybe I escaped, but uh, something even worse can happen to me. So I come in and uh, I was in Boston, but uh, after two months, I got the first message coming from women. And uh, the women told me they wrote a letter to the president of Congo, Mr. Kabila, and they asked him to bring me back. They didn't get an answer, of course. After two weeks, they wrote another letter to the Secretary General of the UN, asking him to bring me back because they need me. And if UN and the government can protect, they will will do it. And there, I just found that, okay, women are so strong, so they want to show that they can do something. But I didn't believe in what they were uh, writing. But after one week, I received a message. They came to the hospital with vegetables and fruits and starting to to sell it and they said each Friday we'll come here with $50 until we get his ticket and the ticket of the family to bring them back.
2: Hmm.
4: And there really I say, okay, this is very ambitious because I know that most of them, they don't have $1 per day uh, for their own life. How they can think that they will pay a ticket for me to come back and pay the ticket for my family, my wife and my two daughters. So I found that this is really an ambition, but yeah. And I just send a small message to say, uh, thank you for your idea, but I think that uh, we have to wait and see what will happen. But the Friday after, they come again with $50. And there I start to really realize that they will not stop their action. And um, the, after I just talked with my family and I said, I can't really, if I can take, I can put on the balance my life and the life of thousands of women who want me to come back and are ready even to do this big sacrifice, selling fruit and vegetables themselves, they have nothing but they still want really to support me. Yeah. I can't let them. In, in this situation, I have to go back. Mm. My family support me and we return. But when I return, there were thousands waiting for me. And they came with food, with everything, and all the authorities of the country were there and they said, Now we have a team of 25 women for each night who will just be around the house of Dr. Mukwege, and we want, if someone wants to kill him, so he must be sure that he has to kill 25 women, but it will be not only 25 women. He will kill all of us. And there really, I could see how women are strong when they decide to do things. So I decided to go back Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I was, they will come and they support for everything, and also so touch for their effort and their action.
2: Last year, of course, you were honored with the uh, Nobel Prize. Can you talk a bit about how it's impacted your work in the hospital, as well as impacted your work more generally? And in particular, what has the Congolese government's reaction been uh, to your Nobel Peace Prize award?
4: Yeah, but as I said before, you know, The Congolese government is really, was uh, in the government we have many people who come from the armed groups. Mm -hmm. So for them, they they know clear what they did in the past. And for them to get a Nobel Prize in the country is to get a voice for women. So uh, since I got this prize, I've never been received by the government or even television, our national television, can't talk about it. So it's a completely silence in my country. For for many people, they even don't know if in Congo we have a Nobel Peace Prize. And this I can understand because they are trying to hide what really they are doing. But what I can see is that many very young. Uh, children in my country going to school, learning. There's the one who are coming to me and and just ask me questions about the Nobel Peace Prize. So this can be hired by by the high rank of uh, uh, army or our government. But I think that children are more aware that in Congo we have a Nobel Peace Prize. This is very positive because I think that the future belongs to this generation. The second thing is after to get this prize, uh, my impression is that on the international level, we have a new platform and uh, we can talk about this question more freely than it was 20 years ago. And this is very positive because as I said, when you don't talk about a question, you can't find solutions for the question. So I think that to be talking about sexual violence in our society is really a way to find also solution against this, the, violence, the sexual violence in the society. And this is happening everywhere. Everywhere we have statistics in our home, in the street, um, in the work. everywhere we have this problem. But I think that starting to talk about it is a start also to start to get solutions.
0: This short clip does not even begin to do justice to Dr. Dennis Mukwege's work, his passion, and his commitment. I'll share all the information where you can find out how you can contribute to his work. Last but not least, I'm going to share a clip by Dr. Dennis Mukwege about a woman called Sarah. This woman's story to me represents the millions of people whose names aren't written in history books, do not have prestigious accolades, and we're fighting for what we call human rights before we can even put a word to this fight. This speech I'm about to read to you is part of Sarah's story and this speech was made by Dr. Dennis Mukwege in his acceptance speech for the 2018 Nobel Peace Prize, co-winner for the campaigners against rape and warfare. Let us build peace. Let us build our country's future. Let us together build a future for Africa. No one else will do it for us. Ladies and gentlemen, friends of peace, The picture I have painted for you depicts a dark reality. But allow me to tell you the story of Sarah. Sarah was referred to the hospital in critical condition. An armed group had attacked her village, massacred her whole family, leaving her alone. She was taken hostage, brought into the forest, and tied to a tree, naked. Every day, Sarah was gang-raped until she lost consciousness. The aim of these rapes used as a weapon of war to destroy the victim, her family, and her community. In short, to destroy the social fabric. When she arrived to the hospital, Sarah could not walk or stand on her feet. She could not control her bladder nor her bowels because of the seriousness of her genital, urinary, and digestive injuries. Complicated by secondary infection, no one could imagine her being able to get back on her feet. Yet, with each passing day, the desire to continue life sparkled in her eyes. Every day, it was she who encouraged the medical staff not to lose hope. Every day, Sarah fought to survive. Today, Sarah is a beautiful, smiling, strong and charming woman. She is working to help people who have survived a history like hers. She has received $50, a grant from our Daucus transit house which gives women who are ready to rebuild their lives socially and economically. Today, Sarah runs a small business. She has bought a plot of land. The Ponzi Foundation has helped her with seeding to make a roof. She's built a house. She's independent and proud of it. Her story shows that no matter how difficult and hopeless the situation, with determination, there is always a light at the end of the tunnel. If a woman like Sarah does not give up, then who are we to do so? I hope you've been inspired to beat to the drum of your own divine purpose. Till next time, I'll catch you later. Bye bye.